Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On February 24th, on the morning that Russia invaded Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a now infamous speech. As justification for the war, he said, basically, that Ukraine's statehood is a fiction. That it doesn't have an identity separate from Russia. That it doesn't exist. Ukraine has never had a consistent tradition of being a true nation. By all accounts, those weren't just empty words. Putin believed the speech. He also thought that because Ukraine doesn't have its own identity, it would welcome Russia with open arms. In his mind, war would be over in a few days, if not a few hours. But instead, the Ukrainian people, who, to be clear, are very real and do have an identity, have shown remarkable resolve. And Putin is in a quagmire. He has entirely misunderstood how this would go because he misunderstands what Ukraine is. This week, we speak with someone who called it, Ukrainian journalist Olga Tokaryuk. Three weeks before the war started, Olga wrote an opinion piece for The Washington Post. Its title was My Generation Has Fought Hard for Democracy. We Stand Ready Once Again. And I also wish that the West and the world would, you know, believe in themselves as much as Ukrainians believe in themselves when they are facing now this much stronger enemy kind of David against Goliath struggle. Olga says this question of Ukrainian identity actually isn't about centuries-old history. It's not about the east of the country that speaks Russian versus the west of the country that speaks Ukrainian. It's about modern history, and it's about a brand new identity that Ukraine has forged since its independence. We are Ukrainian patriots because we value what we have in this country. We value our freedom. We value that we are a democracy. We value that we you know, have a right to a protest. This new Ukrainian identity that has been formed in the in the last eight years, it's based more on the universal uh, values of human rights, of freedom, of democracy, rather than on values such as language or any sort of like narrow traits. After that, we'll have something completely different. The Oscars are coming up, and our film critic Danny Lee comes on to talk about the nominees and ask whether the awards still matter. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Olga, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. Thank you. Could you tell me where you are and and what your last 10 days have been like? Yes, I'm currently in the western Ukraine in the part of the country that, you know, has been relatively safe so far. There is no fighting here and we still hear sirens almost daily and we have to go to hide in the bomb shelters. Mm. Um, but other than that, it's it's fine. We're also having a 
pretty big influx of internally displaced people and we are sheltering them in the house where I'm staying. We currently have 13 people under the same roof with some pets and some children. Uh, And I think like almost every family here in the Western Ukraine is doing the same, either offering shelter or donating clothes and medicines and uh, uh, blankets and whatever they can to help the army and help the civilians who are trapped and stranded in the areas that are affected by fighting. Yeah. And Olga, what are your days like? Like what was today like or what was yesterday like? Well, yesterday, you know, we are also trying to um, conduct some sort of a normal life in the middle of all this terrible news of, you know, like uh, already, like I lost some people I knew they were killed. So this is really like hitting close to home. And also some people like are unreachable. There is no opportunity to know whether they are alive or not, because the mobile connection has been disrupted in the areas that are currently under Russian control. Uh, But, you know, amid all this uh, mayhem, we're trying to to have some sort of normality. So yesterday, there were birthdays of two people Hmm. uh, who are currently like close to me, one person like who's living in my house now. So we had a cake and uh, candles and like a little, little, very little party. Uh, because life has has to go on, and you know the war gives you this feeling that you have to enjoy every day of your life to the most. Yeah, yeah. I saw that a former colleague of yours was killed during a missile attack. Yes, and I'm so sorry. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you could tell me about what happened. Yeah, he was a cameraman, and we used to work together more than 10 years ago when I just started my career as a journalist on one of Ukrainian TV stations. And um, I remember him as a very modest man. Like, mm. uh, we really got along very well. We were not in touch uh, recently. Yeah. But I saw like my former colleagues posting this news that he was killed. And that was, of course, heartbreaking. He was killed by a Russian missile that mm. landed close to Kiev's TV tower where he was working. Olga, we, you know, we asked you on in part because of this piece you wrote more than a month ago in the Washington Post, and you predicted that if Russia were to invade Ukraine, the Ukrainian people would put up such an incredible fight against Russia. And you were right. I'm wondering, sort of, what made you so sure of that then? <laughs> yes, well, I wrote about that also back in November last year, Mm. You know, I, I was sure uh, that Ukrainians will fight because I know Ukraine and I know Ukrainian people. I've been mm-hmm. living here almost all of my life, uh, with a short exception of like two years and a half when I studied abroad. But I decided to go back to Ukraine because I believe that everyone matters. And we've had experience uh, with that and confirmations of that in Ukraine's recent history uh, during the Orange Revolution in 2004, during Maidan Revolution in 2014 and 2013. I was present during both of these events. I was there at Maidan Square in Kyiv. And I felt this incredible power of the people and their determination and their resolve and their conviction, you know, their kind of uh, confidence that eventually they will prevail because they are fighting for a right cause. And I'm feeling the same now. To better understand modern Ukraine's identity, you have to go back about 30 years. 
On December 1, 1991, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, the Ukrainian people voted for independence in a referendum. Other Soviet republics had already declared independence by then, but Ukraine was different. At the time, the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union called Ukraine's independence devastating. He called it, quote, a loss of something Russians think of as part of their own body politic. The Orange Revolution, which Olga just mentioned, took place in late 2004. At the time, a pro-Russian candidate named Viktor Yanukovych was declared the winner of this presidential election amid massive fraud. So the people went out and they protested, and in December of that year, there was a revote, and the pro-reform candidate Viktor Yushchenko won. It was victory for a new Ukraine. So that was kind of my first experience of, uh, you know, fighting for for right. democracy and fighting also for justice. But it also was kind of two steps forward, one step back. Because by 2014, Yanukovych was back in power. Begrudgingly, he promised his people that he would sign an association agreement that would make Ukraine an official partner to the EU. But he broke that promise. And when he did, when he didn't sign that agreement, it sparked another wave of protests that became a revolution. And it also became an explicit standoff between Ukraine and Russia. Can you talk me through, like, Russia's involvement in the Maidan revolution and, and your memories of the time? Well, of course. Uh, so I returned in, Ju- in June 2013, and in November 2013, Yanukovych announced that he was not going to sign the association agreement with the EU, sparking protests and people taking to the streets mm. in the revolution of dignity, or Euromaidan, as it was called. Mm. That was like the last drop that sparked a mass, massive major protest with like uh, hundreds of thousands of people. It lasted almost for four months. Mm-hmm. And it was also bloody. Like for the first time in Ukraine's history, in, in the history of independent Ukraine, peaceful people were killed on the streets of Kyiv. About 100 people were killed. And Yanukovych fled to Russia. And Russia reacted to, to this by um, annexing Crimea and by instigating um, the rebellion, so-called rebellion, because in fact it was not a grassroots protest. Uh, it was all orchestrated by Russian special forces and Russian military sent uh, to Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Did you catch that? What happened in 2014 was that the Ukrainian people came out in droves to support signing this agreement with Europe. It had nothing to do with Russia at all. But when they succeeded in chasing out Yanukovych and signing that EU document, Russia just invaded. First on the Black Sea Peninsula of Crimea, and then in eastern Ukraine. And then the war started. So, of course, you know, the their reaction to that, like my personal reaction was shock because I, I lived in a peaceful country. I was born in, in a peaceful country. Yeah. Back then, I think many people in Ukraine realized that it wasn't some internal matter, that it wasn't, you know, just like a struggle against corruption, because I think many people who took to the streets during the Revolution of Dignity, they just thought we are protesting against this corrupt uh, dictator. And once he's out, we will build like a prosperous country. But once he was out, Russia stepped in and everyone, I think, realized that we are not fighting just corrupt politicians with links to Russia, but we are fighting with Russia itself. The Maidan revolution and the war that's been slowly burning since marked a turning point for both Russia and Ukraine. In Russia, the last seven years have been a time of increased repression. But for Ukrainians, 2014 was the beginning of a new era. The country's undergone a lot of reforms, partially to comply with the EU agreement that it signed, 
And Ukrainians in the East and in the West have had to pick a side. Did they want a more transparent government system or did they want a Russian style oligarchy? Olga, let's talk about that. I mean, that's that seems like over the last seven, eight years, Ukraine has really gone in one direction and Russia has gone in another. Can you tell me what's been happening in Ukraine? Like, how has society changed? Well, uh, you know, I think the war, uh, it was such a watershed moment for Ukraine and for many Ukrainians. Yeah. Uh, while, of course, like Ukraine has and had a lot of problems in these years, but also a massive effort has been undertaken to reform the country. And there are a lot of there were a lot of successes on that. A lot of laws have been adopted on transparency of public procurement, you know, open registries, anti-corruption, anti-oligarch laws. We've had free elections, like several of them since 2014. Right. We have free media. People are able to go out on the streets and protest in Ukraine if they don't like the government's policy and the government has to listen. So, so many things that are different from as what they are in Russia, you know, where there is no free press, there is no like equal rights, uh, there are no free elections, mm -hmm. there is no freedom to to protest. To you, these last seven years, eight years, like how has all that change felt to you? Do people have a sort of new sense of being Ukrainian? How do you feel like it's shaped Ukrainian identity? Well, Ukrainian identity has been reinforced a lot over these years. And, mm. uh, you know, like even on like a personal level of my friends and acquaintances uh, because of war and because of the fact that Russia was, you know, so like clearly bent on destroying this Ukrainian sentiment and Ukrainian identity. Many people shifted to using Ukrainian language rather than Russian with their children, for example. Although like language was never a big issue, in fact, in Ukraine, like most of the population is bilingual and everybody is using both languages. Mm. And many, you know, people whose identity was kind of more fluid before the war, they took sides and they kind of defined for themselves who they are because mm. of this Russian aggression. So a lot of people also in the, you know, southern and eastern regions of the country, uh, mostly Russian speakers, many of them even ethnic Russians or who have a part of Russian blood in, in their veins, they were saying, well, you know, we might be Russian speakers, we might be ethnic Russians, but we are loyal Ukrainians. Olga says that despite the loss of these two breakaway regions, you could feel a renaissance in Ukrainian life since the war of 2014-2015, especially in the capital. Before two weeks ago, Kiev was full of tourists. They were there to see its historic architecture and experience its thriving club scene. I was actually one of those tourists. In 2018, I visited Kiev for a few days and it was extremely cool. It had these big golden domed churches that were bright blue, strikingly bright. It had catacombs that are hundreds of years old. It had trendy cafes. It had great street art. It had cool fashion. Yes, well, Kiev, you know, um, it really has improved a lot over the last years. And it was basically like every major European capital, a very vibrant city with a lot of um, nice cafes and restaurants and places to go out. And something that, you know, kind of also flourished in the last eight years was this Ukrainian cultural scene. Uh, a lot of great Ukrainian music, conquering contests such as Eurovision and others. 
a lot of Ukrainian DJs uh, invited to you know major events of electronic music all over the world. Uh, Ukrainian uh, films, uh, fiction, and documentary winning awards at festivals such as Sundance. So, uh, like also this kind of boom of uh, this new, newly found Ukrainian identity, it was translated in all of this. Yeah, uh, and Ukraine also, like in terms of the economy and uh, you know the middle class, like professionals, Ukraine also has become an IT hub. Um, one of like biggest global IT hubs with a lot of uh, highly qualified, skilled professionals working in IT, either in Ukrainian startups or in global startups. The Ukrainians are looking at the future rather than to the past, you know, looking for ways to develop like some new things and, and all these achievements. Right. They are an expression of all this forward thinking and looking forward. Olga says she's worried that this war will take the best and brightest of this generation in Ukraine. She says that every day she sees brilliant people who have been moving Ukraine forward enlist for the army. Lawyers, computer coders, filmmakers, historians, activists. Watching all this, on the one hand, I'm really proud of them. I admire them. But on the other hand, I'm so worried that we might lose this best the best people you know yeah. like the the leaders and those who were like building this this country with their own hands over all these years who invested so much in development of ukraine and now their lives could be just taken in this senseless war launched by putin olga i know we've been talking about ukraine's modern identity but I'm curious what you think when Putin says that Ukraine doesn't have a real history or a real culture outside of Russia. Like, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, the, this narrative that Ukrainians are not a real country or that like the Ukrainian nation is somewhat inferior to the Russian nation is nothing new. This is a continuation of Russian imperialist policy that it has been conducted for centuries, you know. Ukrainians never had a chance to have an independent state before 1991, but their struggle to have one, you know, is uh, last has lasted for centuries. Right. But in the last 30 years since Ukraine became independent, Ukraine has been trying to kind of take this its past back and to kind of realize itself and tell the world about itself mm. in the narrative in terms that are different from like how Ukraine was depicted and talked about through the Russian, all this imperialist colonial optics. And, and especially this was reinforced in the last eight years since Russia f- first invaded, because the realization came, I think, to many people that what Russia is doing, like all this aggression against Ukraine, is not something new. Yeah. And that's why it's also kind of an explanation why Ukrainians are fighting, you know, so so much, because they've been building this country for 30 years. Like our ancestors have been dreaming about Ukraine's independence for centuries. So many of them died in, uh, you know, uh, the hands of Russian Empire, at the hands of the Soviet Union. And then finally, we had a chance to build this, you know, new, independent, free country. But because of this evil neighbor that would just like not let us go. We are facing all these terrible things now. Yeah. Um, Olga, I really appreciate you taking so much time. I'm curious what you're preparing for in terms of how long this might go. Well, it's very hard to predict anything at this point, you know. I'm just trying to live like every day 
to the fullest and do what I can to contribute to the resistance of this country. In my case, is like spreading the word about what is happening as a journalist, reporting from here, telling stories of Ukrainians, telling human stories, because I think it's ultimately the people who matter. Olga, thank you so much. Thank you, Lila. Thank you so much. It can be hard to focus on anything but the war in Ukraine. And it's a balance, right? How much should we continue on with our daily interests? It's different for everyone. For some people, escapism is helpful. So for the rest of the show, we turn to movies. The Oscars are coming up. The 94th Academy Awards ceremony will be held in Los Angeles on March 27th. But will anyone actually be watching? Or did COVID destroy the cinema? Cinema's always been, you know, on the brink of extinction. I don't, I don't take that that seriously. I can remember those conversations happening in the in the, the 1980s when I was a kid and everyone was getting VCRs. But the conversation about the Oscars and the the kind of looming ir- irrelevance of the Oscars, yeah, I mean, it feels much louder. That's Danny Lee, our film critic. He thinks films are still alive and well, but the Oscars, on the other hand, they may be a dying vestige of the past. He joined me to talk about the future of the Oscars, whether the Oscars are still relevant, if they can be redeemed, and if we should care. Danny Lee, thanks for being on the show. It's such a pleasure. So let's look at the movies nominated for Best Picture this year. Looking at the list of Best Picture nominees, it's kind of an eclectic mix, and I'm wondering if you can talk through them a little bit. Like, what surprised you on the list, and 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 why are they there? And yeah. First and foremost, well, you've got like 10 nominees. It's so many. There's supposed to be something for everybody. And the irony um, is that there will be lots and lots of people who are kind of, you know, film goers and film lovers, but who haven't actually seen any of these films. Um, <laughs> but, you know, certainly this is the Academy trying to trying to hedge their bets kind of frantically. Um, you've got, the, the, you know, the traditional... Oscar frontrunners, really, you know, which have, have done like the film festival circuit and be, and done that very traditional thing, which is kind of pick up momentum and get themselves talked about. You know, they're movies that were made with with awards in mind and, and, and kind of exhibit A there is The Power of the Dog. Where have you been, Phil? I could hardly eat worrying about you. I didn't get washed up, so I didn't come. Our top Oscar bait film, Power of the Dog, is on Netflix. Danny calls it a brooding Western gothic. It's got Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst, and it's directed by the esteemed Jane Campion, who's also known for films like The Piano. It's been nominated for 12 awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. There's also another style of film on this year's Oscar list, the social statement movie. In this case, it's the apocalyptic drama comedy, also on Netflix, called Don't Look Up. Then there's Dune. Dune is, you know, every year there's the film which is, you know, normally it's made by Christopher Nolan. It's the film which seems to speak to a particular demographic. It's technically immaculate. It's possibly a little humorless. It's very self-consciously epic in scale. And it always cleans up in the technical categories while also being nominated mm kind of, you know, not quite as a gesture, but it's like nominated with no real hope of winning uh, in Best Picture. (laughs) Then there's Coda, a film about a teenage girl who is the only hearing member of her family. Her family is deaf. You're the girl with a deaf family? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to tell you right now. And you sing. Interesting. If you'd like to cry for an hour, I would recommend Coda. Coda's one of those films, and this is maybe 
one of the, the genuine remaining purposes of the Oscars is, you know, a certain amount of spotlight is always going to fall on the Oscars. And in turn, that can then kind of be diffused into some films, which actually otherwise would disappear a little bit. And I, and I hope some people at least will kind of seek out Coda just because it's up for like best picture. Um, That's why I watched it. There you go. Yeah. That's just scratching the surface, but you get the idea. There's lots of variety. And I was curious what that means while viewership numbers are basically in freefall. According to Nielsen data, which is not perfect, but the best we have, in 1998, when Titanic won Best Picture, 55 million viewers tuned in. That was like peak Oscars. By 2019, over 20 years later, it was down to just under 30 million viewers. And post-COVID, last year? Forget it. It dropped to 10.4 million, the lowest in Oscar history. Danny, it sort of feels like the Oscars are scrambling so much to be something to everyone this year that they kind of have become everything to no one. And uh, if we don't really care anymore, it makes me kind of wonder how much the industry cares. I mean, if you're Netflix and you're still trying, you're still even now, I think, trying to prove your bona fides and still trying to establish yourself in the industry. I mean, if, if the power of the dog has some incredible clean sweep at the Oscars, you know, Netflix will be delighted. I think if you're Warner Brothers and Dune does really <laughs> right. well at the Oscars, I don't know that it means that much. It's nuanced and there are there are huge shades of grey here. Um, you know, and I think it's it's premature to talk about the Oscars being irrelevant with a capital I and, right. and the Oscars are done for in past tense. I don't think any of that's true, but I think it's undeniable that, you know, for us as culturally engaged people out in the world wondering who's going to win this year and for actors and producers and people running studios. It, the Oscars don't mean what they meant in 1997. Part of the problem is that the Oscars continue to be, despite efforts to improve, not particularly diverse. Remember the Oscars so white hashtag from 2015? It emerged after all 20 acting nominations were to white actors for two years in a row. And it's gotten better, but not a lot better. Danny, I'm surprised by how little diversity there still seems to be in the Oscar nominations this year. Um, and even after all these years, I mean, that feels like a reason it's going to keep losing relevance. I mean, even looking this year, there's only one woman director on the best director list, Jane Campion. And that's for like the whitest movie on the planet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's so interesting as well, because I think you've got one sector of people, you know, who are enraged by the very mention of the Oscars now, because they see it as this, you know, as kind of politically enemy territory. Um, and yet you've also got the original problem, you know, which was a genuine problem back in, you know, in, in the 2010s when people started saying, you know, why are no women directors ever nominated? And then intensified, obviously, because of race, you know, because of, of Oscar so white as well. I'm not sure how much of that stuff has actually been fixed. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem like it's been fixed. And it is kind of strange that it's not a bigger story right now. It's very strange. I mean, this year, there were much fewer headlines around diversity. And I think maybe because Jane Campion is is such a front runner, I, I suppose, more than anything, you know, right. actually, that's kind of disguising the fact 20% representation for women, you know, in, yeah. in the best director category, which, you know, 20% representation for women in any other kind of context would be seen as scandalous, right? right. Um, but here, it's kind of unnoticed. Danny's also noticed something strange about the best actress category. Another story that's gone unnoticed. If you sort of map 
the films which are up for best picture, the films which are up for best director, they map quite closely together. Um, and they also then overlap a lot with the best actor categories. In short, because, you know, the biggest movies of the year and the ones which have got the biggest attention and praise for their directors have been stories about men. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas when you look at the best actress category, it's kind of striking, actually. You know, Nicole Kidman is the front runner for Being the Ricardos, which was a, quite an iffily reviewed film. That lukewarm critical reaction spans the whole category. Jessica Chastain in The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers, both films were considered pretty flawed. Reviews for Kristen Stewart's performance in Spencer also totally eclipsed the film. And there's a lot to think about here. I think it's a really interesting category when you look at it, because it's like, okay, so we're going to reward the, the, you know, the excellence for actresses is in films that, you know... That weren't critically received well. Yeah, haven't had particularly good reviews, are kind of, have been received somewhere between polite and and kind of verging on the hostile. So is it that actresses aren't celebrated enough in the films that are considered to be the best? Are there not enough women in films that aren't considered to be the best? And, or, are films that have women at the center reviewed more critically because films centered around the female experience aren't taken as seriously by a system of mostly male critics? For example, should Maggie Gyllenhaal have been nominated for Best Director for The Lost Daughter? I can only pose these questions, not answer them. But I will say that the most divisive film on the list, interestingly, was the one directed by a woman, Power of the Dog. It's the one up for the most awards and the one nobody can seem to agree on. So what do you think will win? Uh, I think Power of the Dog will win. Um, yeah. I'd kind of be surprised if it didn't. Um, and again, I think there are, there's an interesting story around that because it's a, it's a divisive film. And, of, yeah. and often what's happened with, with the Oscars is, is that, you know, the movie that nobody dislikes, you know, always ends up kind of soaring in triumph because it's always like every, right. everybody's <laughs> third favourite movie. Um, right. Uh, um, great. So I would love to talk about The Power of the Dog because, uh, <laughs> as you said, it is very divisive. I've been waiting to ask you about it. Listeners of the show and my friends are very split on it. It's almost like the people who like it like it, but the people who don't like it really are mad about it. <laughs> this is the interesting thing, actually, yeah, because there's an imbalance in passions here. An awful lot of people really seem to take against the film. Just like, I mean, I don't know. You tell you tell me. I'm kind of. I'm like. I feel like I'm collating information about why people <laughs> well, dislike this film so much. I walked into it thinking, "Wow, this is a film that's up for twelve awards." Like, why? I'm surprised. And I watched the trailer, and I thought, "Okay, this is like the opposite of my kind of film. I'm never gonna. <laughs> this is not. This is not gonna work for me." And then I put it on Instagram. Has anyone seen it? And, and it was just like very um, strong opinions against it. And then a few like, "I don't get it. I I liked it." So I went in thinking I was going to hate it. Um, and uh, and I kind of liked it. I mean, the scenery was gorgeous. It was clever. I thought the end was good. It felt like a weird, spooky little vignette, like a short story. Did it teach me anything about humanity that I'm going to take with me and think about for a long time? Like, no. Like, did it, would I have been just as happy without this movie existing? Like, probably, yeah. But was it, like, as a piece of art, was it good? Mm. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I thought it was smart. Wow, this is but this is so damning, Lila. Because it's like, because if you're <laughs> if you're coming from this as essentially 
like you're a fan, you know, and you're saying, I like the scenery. I mean, does it, <laughs> would the world have been, a, a, you know, unchanged had this film never really existed? No, not really. I mean, right. I, I think this is, I mean, that tells a story. You know? Yeah, I know. And we haven't, know. we haven't even got into the hatred yet. Katya, can I bring you in? I would love to hear what you hated about Palanca Dog. <laughs> Katya Kamkova is our senior producer, and she had a very strong reaction to this film. I think it is pretending to be cinema. I think it is pretending to be art, art house. It's, you know, a slow, deliberately paced movie that doesn't do the thing that you want slow, deliberately paced movies to do, which is, um, you know, reveal itself in every moment. And I didn't feel that to be true. And this felt like nothing happened. Uh, and you sat through an excruciating two hours at the end of which something did finally happen, but it, it just didn't have that kind of unfolding for me that I that I want from a slow, deliberate movie. Um, and then the, the resolution was sort of like, it didn't bring it together for me, I guess. That's really interesting. That's because in, because yeah. I think yeah, I mean the ending is, you know, I mean the, the, the cliche is always you know kind of a good ending kind of covers up for any other number of flaws. Uh, and but when you botch your ending slightly, um, it kind of makes you question the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it, if, if it will be go down in history as the you know the first best picture winner that nobody likes. <laughs> Danny, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really a pleasure. Lila, it's, it's always a pleasure. And good to talk to you too, Thatcher. Another Power of the Dog hater in my file. It's great. <laughs> That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Do keep in touch. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. And honestly, if there are any specific cultural elements of this war that you'd love to hear us cover, let me know. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. Those emails go straight to me. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me mostly on Instagram and sometimes on Twitter at Lila Rath. The FT is making key Ukraine coverage free to read to keep you informed. And you can find that link and links to everything mentioned today in the show notes. I also have the best offers available there on a subscription to the FT if you'd like to support our journalism and get access to all of our reporting. As I said a few weeks ago, this is a good time to try us out if you haven't already. One reader wrote us that the FT's reporting has been beyond exceptional and they couldn't get through this crisis without it. It's been all hands on deck over here, and I am inspired by my colleagues who truly are the best at what we do. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. The show was mixed this week by Hannes Brown. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks to Manuela Saragosa, Cheryl Brumley, and Renee Kaplan. Thank you, please take care, and we'll find each other again next week. <laughs>